1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3.
0: Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We invite you to be with us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guard our thoughts, words, and and the publications that result from this time that they might be pleasing to you, and that they might accomplish your purpose in each of our lives as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going through, obviously, um, the first epistle of Peter. And Peter is quite a colorful character, so we watch some of these things with great interest because he's got a little different style and focus and perspective than Paul does. So we, we spend so much of our time in the Pauline epistles with good result, because he's, that's what God called him to do. But Peter's a little different, he has a different cut of jib, if you will, and uh, so it's, uh, he's a fun guy. And uh, we're in chapter 3, which has some very provocative aspects to it, so we'll see if we can sort that out as we go. So this chapter, by the way, you'll discover, remarkably fits our time Today. Which raises the question, how does the believer live in a hostile pagan world? Most of us, over the last several decades, have lived a life in a country in which it was socially uh, you know, acceptable to be a, a Christian. Many people were posed as Christians just for the social acceptance in the culture, not really being born again. We're moving into an era which is increasingly pagan and increasingly hostile to being a true biblical Christian and uh, we need to understand, so how does a believer live in the kind of world that our world is becoming? We need to understand it's changing and we need to understand what that implies for us. This chapter is also going to highlight some interesting prophetic and I'll say dispensational aspects of the scripture. We're going to learn some lessons here that have broader application than just this chapter. But it's going to start, of course, with the primary spiritual fortification that we all need to focus on. That's our marriage. That's the first line of defense to the basic molecule of our society, the marriage. And that marriage, in fact, everything God ordained in Genesis is under attack deliberately by the world. They're trying to undo marriage, same-sex marriages, the promotion of homosexuality, the promotion of abortions, which cause split families, which result in children that can't have the intimacy, haven't been taught. That. There's a whole bunch of social aspects to that that we need to be facing. So let's jump in. First uh, Peter chapter 3 starting with verse 1. Likewise ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word they also may without the word be won by the behavior conversation is used in the old English sense, behavior of the wives be in subjection. That's when all now the women are bristling a little bit oh here we go again. That participle, translated in subjection, carries the force of a command here. It did in chapter 2, verse 18, a similar term. It also shows up emphatically and elaborate in Ephesians chapter 5, and it's touched on in Colossians. So that's not a new subject. But the command does not require women to be subordinate to men in general. That's not what he's talking about here. But to their husbands as a function of the order within the home, what he's talking about. I'm not saying those other things don't apply in some sense, but that's not his focus here. His focus is the family. And you guys who are not leading your families are risking them to dissolution. One of the great problems women have is finding guys who show the leadership that they're supposed to, to be the high priest of the home. If you're not leading a Bible study among your kids, you better pray about that. And uh, it's it's a serious issue. So this is dealing with marital challenges here. A wife is to accept her place in the family under the leadership of her husband, whom God has placed as head of the home. That's as much an instruction to the husband as it is to the guy, to the gals. Wives are to be submissive, even if their husbands are unbelievers, is what Peter is suggesting here. Why? So that men might be saved by the behavior of their wives. That's his real point. The strongest be a a witness of a wife is her behavior, not her words. Not nagging, not dragging him to the weekly prayer meeting or whatever. And there are few experiences that are more difficult than somehow being united in marriage to an unbeliever. Boy, we need to let our kids, as they uh, get into social uh, involvements, really understand the risks of that. And if one takes a superior attitude towards their mate, it'll only stir up opposition. To the truth and render conditions increasingly difficult. An imperious mate will drive their spouse further from God rather than draw them to Christ. Actions speak louder than words, is what Peter is underscoring here. Well, let's move on. See, while they behold your chaste behavior, I'll use the word, the more contemporary word, the word conversation in the Old English meant different, it had different meaning then than we use the term. Today we use that term really just to involve. Uh, dialogue. The Old English version of the uh, 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 understanding of that word was your whole behavior, your chaste conversation coupled with fear. And of course, that word fear is really reverence, to be a little more accurate. The powerful purity of a godly woman's life can soften even the stoniest male heart without a word. And Titus talks about that. Paul's letter to Titus talks about it. Next verse, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair, or the wearing of gold, or the putting on of an apparel. The word adorning here is actually deriv- derivative from the Greek word cosmos. The Greek word cosmos is also translated like the world, that is in the sense the world order, uh, the, world, the, the order of the universe, world inhabitants, mankind, those, uh, the realm of existence, the way of life especially in the sense that it is opposed to the purpose of God. Cosmos is the world in the sense that it's adversarial to, to God. And so here, the word it also means adornment. The word actually in the Greek means to bring order out of chaos. And that's where we get the same root from which we get cosmetics, to bring order out of chaos. And the girls think, I'm kidding. I'm not really. That's really what the word means, okay? Okay, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and the word man here is in the sense of mankind, but the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of the meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. See, scriptures don't forbid a measure of adornment of the person. That's not what it's preaching against here. But rather trying to discourage dependence upon this to make one pleasing and attractive. There's nothing wrong about presenting yourself as attractively as uh, a decorum allows. But that's not the point. You don't depend on that. A slanderly or a slovenly person only repels. And, uh, but one may be tastefully attired and immaculately groomed, and yet spoil everything by a haughty spirit or a bad temper. As a jewel of gold and a swine's snout. So is a woman without discretion, Proverbs say. It captures somewhat the same flavor. Okay. Peter does not state that women should not wear jewelry and nice clothes. That's not what he's saying. It. But that Christian wives should not think of outer attire as the source of genuine beauty. A woman who wins this kind of victory has a winsome loveliness that comes not from outward adornment, but from her inner self, is the point. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in 1 Timothy 2 deals with that. All of this is so straightforward. Obviously, you could preach sermons on each one of these, but I'm assuming with this audience that would be um, unnecessary. The hidden man of the heart. Strange phrase, and it's not man in the sense of gender. It's the inner person. And uh, if you want to get into that more, I encourage you to explore some best-selling books that my wife has written. I think The Way of Agape is in its 15th printing and it's all over the world, used in exactly this kind of thing, and also be transformed, a sequel to that. These are very practical how-to, uh, how-to books, help books, which focus on the inner self and this kind of beauty. And uh, so, it's one of the blessings God has given me as a, a woman who shines in both camps, both uh, in the superficial sense, but also, more importantly, in the deeper sense. Anyway, moving on. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. He's just driving the point home here. This is a comment on the role of husbands and wives, not men and women in general. That's the point I want to make. Many people, you find these verses often quoted out of context. No, this is primarily aimed at preserving the marriage. And uh, this is also dwelt upon in our commentary in Ephesians, if you will especially Ephesians 5. If you've been through those studies, you can go review the notes of those to supplement these notes. But moving on, Peter says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So remember that Abraham was passing her off as his sister. He wasn't lying. She was a half-sister. But she was also his wife. But he, he, several, more than once, uses that ruse to uh, protect himself, in effect. And she went along with it. And uh, she still on him Lord, and she indulged all that. The word amazement here is a strange word. It actually means to be afraid with terror. It's the, this is the only place it's used in the entire New Testament, by the way. Strange word, but anyway, move on. Verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the w- unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, um, the weaker vessel. You understand that the weaker sex is really the stronger sex because of the stronger sex's weakness for the weaker sex, right? Just thought I'd make that clear, okay? But um, the other thing here, uh, they're weaker physically and emotionally, not intellectually. And yet they're also joint heirs to God's gift of life. We need to never lose sight of that. But that your prayers be not hindered. Now you can regard this in a mystical sense, because there is power in prayer, and that can be hindered if you're not walking right, if you will. But the context here actually is the home, Quarreling, quarreling and bickering in the home stifle all fellowship in prayer. The undertone here is is that the husband and wife, if they're together and praying together, that has more power than if there's a tension between them. You should never let the sun set on attention. It should be dealt with, and you should be kneeling together, the beginning and end of every day, if at all possible. That's really what I think Peter's thought is here. But now we're going to shift a little bit from the marital thing to our broader, a broader sweep in the culture. How do we live in a hostile pagan culture? And you can decide yourself if this has some bearing on where we are at. Peter anticipates and then quotes from the Old Testament in driving his points home in this section of the epistle, starting at verse 8. Finally, be, all ye, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, Wow. Finally. This falls this follows from what went before, but he's also introducing a whole new topic here, right? Finally, he's shifting so he's shifting gears here. And uh, so he's it's following from but yet introducing a new section. Same thing Paul does in Philippians 3 and also in 1 Thessalonians 4. And you know how it is during a sermon. Finally, my brethren, that means you got another 20 minutes coming, you know. Okay. But he now lists five qualities here in this verse. Five qualities here. Okay. Be all of one mind. Homophrones. That's like-minded. Harmony. No surprise. You could preach a sermon on that very easily. Any one of you. Having compassion one of another. And that's the Greek word from which we get the word sympathetic. Okay. And uh, pretty straightforward. Having compassion one to another. And we should always remember... That Christ's compassion far exceeds ours. So we have an imperative here that's obviously appropriate. And then love as brethren. The word is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is familiar to most of us. Brotherly love. Well, that's the same word here. To love as brethren. Okay, fair enough. And be pitiful. And it's really a word meaning compassionate or tenderhearted. So these are all obviously close cousins to one another, each one of these words. And then finally, be courteous. Humble. It's another way, it's a word really that implies humility. Be courteous. You know, I'm startled as I shifted my professional world, spent 30 years in the corporate boardrooms into professional Christianity. There was a number of tough adjustments. The lack of ethics was one of them. The ethics in those days was higher in the boardrooms than it is today in, among the Christians, among pastors, strangely. But what really disturbs me still is the astonishing discourtesy among pastors and people. Um, Nothing sinister here. Um, I think uh, a lot of that's just a lack of training. Just a lack of training. There are things called common courtesies that are astonishingly absent from our culture. And uh, so... uh, Anyway, this unique vocabulary here simply stresses the importance of Christian virtues to keep from being deceitful. Every one of these things, whether you're like-minded, sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, be humble, are all guards against deceit. Being candid, being direct, being forthright. That's really the, the thing that ties these together into a cluster. Continuing, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Okay, there's no room for revenge here. There's no concept of vengeance or retribution within the body. Vengeance is mine, God says again and again and again in the Old Testament and in the New. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Romans 12. Leviticus 19.18 which is the golden rule in effect or loving your neighbor. Proverbs 24 several places. Jesus also taught us to refrain from retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.39 We are to seek peace by returning a blessing when receiving an insult. Okay? Straightforward. Don't have to preach a sermon on this. Just Let's keep that in mind. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. By the way, are you praying for the president of our country? Many people are concerned by a lot of things that are going on. Okay, I'm not here to defend him, but do we pray for the office? We're we're told to. We should pray for those in authority. And we should pray for those who are adversarial to your interests. Strange idea. Bizarre idea. It's one of the discriminating differences between the god of Yahweh and the god of Allah. Allah is a god, uh, Allah is a god of death, of vengeance, of uh, uh, military conquest. Yahweh's instruction in the person of Christ is to pray for those who persecute you. What a radical idea that is. Does that mean you're letting them off the hook? No. No, 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 no. You're putting the problem in God's lap where it belongs, not yours. And Paul said the same thing. He emphasized in 1 Corinthians 4. When ye are cursed, we bless. When we are cursed, we bless. Now, Peter does a very strange thing here that has not only content, it has adjective carry. There's some messages that carry a message, but there's some messages that give you an adjective aspect. You learn something about carrying messages out of them. When A says something about B, you'll learn a lot about A. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, let's take a look. Peter's going to quote Psalm 34, verse 12 to 16, in the next few verses. Verses 10 to 12. He says, listen to what Peter says. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? We think we get the flavor of that. that, Peter's quoting from Psalms, right? Kind of strange. He didn't quote part of that psalm. He quoted the psalm incompletely. He redacted a phrase. Now, uh, the casual Bible reader would say, well, okay, it just doesn't record that. He probably quoted the whole thing. or I mean, so what? No. I'm hoping you will develop a respect for the Word of God that goes down to precision. When something is not said, you want to ask, why? Every detail of the Scripture we discover, whether it's a number, a place name, or even subtleties of sentence structure are the Word of God. The Word of God is pure. God maintains all through His Scriptures. The Word of God is pure. It's without deceit. Okay, then if this is the Word of God, did Peter know that he was redacting it? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. None of us could answer that question. But what's going on here? Well, let's take a look at what he's reading from. He's quoting from Psalm 34, 12 to 16. Let's look at that. Man, what man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are open up, upon the righteous, and his ears are open to the cry. So far, this is pretty much what Peter's saying there, right? Here we have it from the Masoretic text, translated from the Hebrew. Peter is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, but they're tracking each other pretty closely here if we went down through it clause by clause. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, and to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. That's in the Word of God. But that last phrase, Peter drops. Why? Because it's not true? No. Certainly true. It's in the Word of God. Why does he redact it? Why does he stop at a comma and drop that clause? Peter omitted from Psalm 34, 16 to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. This last element will not be in this age. Peter is talking to believers, to the body of Christ. They happen to be Jewish believers, but still they're part of what we would call the church. This is not going to be during the church age. This is something that will happen later. Now what's interesting about this technique, aside from the point that Peter's making, it's a subtlety, we want to be understand there's some aspects to that that are not in this age, they're yet future. This is exactly what the Lord did when He opens His ministry in Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. Let's refresh our memory on this. And again, he stopped short of a phrase here. Luke 4, starting at verse 16, reads as follows. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. He's in the synagogue. He stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, Now notice what he does here. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. He goes to a specific passage for a specific purpose. Let's see what he read here. According to Luke, here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And what comes after Lord? A period, right? That's, that's the way it's in Luke. He's reading, it happens, from Isaiah 61. Let's take a look at this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Whoops, there's a comma there in our, in our translation, implied presumably in the te- original text, but there's a comma. And then there's a phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus end the reading at the comma? Because that, he did that because of the next verse. He closed the book, gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture... Fulfilled in your ears. That's why he couldn't put that last phrase, because that will t- take place at his second coming. This is his mandate for the first coming, as we would look at it. This, this, this triggers the beginning of his ministry. This day is this scripture, fulfilling yours. And he is fulfilling the mandate that that passage in, in Isaiah summarizes. Interesting. Now what we have here then by the way is a is kind of a gap. There's a mandate described by Christ. Part of that mandate is yet future. There's a gap, if you will, in that comma. That comma has lasted about 2000 years already. Follow me? Same thing's true with Peter's redaction there. He doesn't mention that last phrase. Because that's not during the church period, it's later. That's what we call an interval, a gap, okay? It's implied. But here, by Peter in the one case, and Christ in the second place, it's obvious, and I could facetiously say, it proves that Jesus is a dispensationalist. What do I mean by that? People who are dispensational argue that the history of God's plan is in, in segments in which there's certain conditions in each one. And there's a dispensation The dispensation in Eden is a little different than the dispensation in Noah. And Moses, you can go right on through and study those things, when they start, when they finish. And that's called dispensational. There are many people that take that to an abusive level that's not getting into. That's why some people regard dispensationalism as sort of a, a stigma. No, the scripture says we should rightly divide the word of truth.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device.